We've been doing Jones Day Talks Women in IP for more than a year, but we've never had a program quite like today's. Our panel will discuss two recent U.S. Supreme Court decisions relating to trademark law and follow that with a preview of two other cases the High Court will hear during its session kicking off in October. We're glad you're here. You're going to like this one. I'm Dave Dalton. You're listening to Jones Day Talks Women in IP. Jennifer Sweezy is an experienced appellate advocate with particular focus on patent appeals before the Federal Circuit. Jennifer has argued Federal Circuit appeals and led and co-authored briefs. Anna Raymer works with clients to design and implement worldwide trademark protection programs, strengthen their IP portfolios, and resolve domestic and international trademark disputes. And Meredith Wilkes co-leads the firm's Global Trademarks, Unfair Competition, and Copyrights Group. She is focused on high-stakes trademark, trade dress, trade secret, false advertising, and design patent litigation matters for global brands and federal and state courts throughout the U.S. for more than 20 years. Anna, Jennifer, Meredith, thanks for being here today. Thanks for having us, Dave. Thank you. I really like the way this is setting up today. We're going to talk about two recent uh, Supreme Court decisions in trademark law. We're going to talk about, looking ahead, two cases the court likely will hear next session, which I believe kicks off in October. But let's start off with what's happened recently. Let's go to the court's May decision in Mission Product Holdings, Inc. v. Technology LLC. Uh, let's go to Anna first. Anna, give us some background on this matter. This involved both trademark law and bankruptcy law, correct? That's exactly right. In Mission, we're talking about the impact of bankruptcy on a trademark license. So we have Technology on the one hand, they own a brand called CoolCore for right. exercise clothing, and they entered into an agreement with Mission. It was a non-exclusive license to use these CoolCore trademarks. And while the license was set to expire in about July of 2016, Technology filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, and so that was in 2015. And as part of that proceeding, they asked the bankruptcy court to reject the license agreement that they had with Mission. Mm-hmm. Now, the bankruptcy code does provide for a debtor to reject any executory contract, and that means one that neither party has finished performing, Mm -hmm. and then that rejection constitutes a breach. But the question for the courts in this case was that in the context of a trademark licensing agreement, does this rejection strip the licensee of its rights to continue using the trademark? Okay, so that was the the question at issue. Let's go over to Jennifer Sweezy. Uh, Jennifer, this is your first podcast with us. Is that correct? It is. I'm very happy to join. I was going to ask how you're liking it so far. (laughs) Sounds so good, right? It's been a lot of fun. Terrific, terrific. All right, tell us how the court ultimately ruled in mission. Sure. The court ruled that a trustee or a debtor that's representing itself when it rejects a trademark license in the context of bankruptcy, that's not going to strip the licensee of its rights under the license. Basically, the court relied on the provision that a rejection constitutes a, quote, breach, Mm -hmm. and that means a breach is a breach. It's not a rescission. So all of the rights that the trademark licensee has in a breach would still continue. Okay. Let's stay with Jennifer for a second. In a Jones Day client alert, published back in May, and uh, listeners, you can find that at jonesday.com. The firm wrote, I'm reading here, the Supreme Court's decision resolves the circuit split that grew from the bankruptcy code's definition of intellectual property, which includes patents and copyrights, but not trademarks. Jennifer, that sounds serious. Can you explain what that means exactly? Sure, and it is a really important part of the case because there is a, a specific 
definition of intellectual property in the bankruptcy code that includes things like patents and copyright, but doesn't include trademark, which is the context of this case, as Anna pointed out. And there was uh, sort of a debate among some courts about when you have this provision that specifically talks about certain types of IP, but not trademark, and then there's another provision that specifically addresses those IP licenses and what happens in a rejection and says that the rights under those licenses continue for the licensee subject to a certain, a certain set of caveats. How do you read that those provisions as related to trademark licensees? Mm-hmm. So we have the, the First Circuit on the one hand that relied on this sort of typical rule of law called negative inference and said, well, we have these provisions that are about specific IP, not trademark, so we're going to draw the negative inference that any other type of IP license doesn't get to have the licensee's rights continue. The Seventh Circuit disagreed, so that's where we get the circuit split, Mm -hmm. and the Supreme Court agreed with the Seventh Circuit, and it said, look, there's a general provision about these executory contracts and what happens when there's a rejection of them. The general provision, um, and I like Justice Kagan's very plain language, she says, the general provisions speak well generally. So even though there's some other specific IP provisions, we're going to treat trademark licenses like any other type of license under the general provision, and that means a breach is a breach and the licensee's rights can continue. Okay. Let's finish up this case with Meredith Wilkes. Meredith, talk about how this impacts trademark licensees and license negotiations moving forward from here, this ruling. That's a terrific question, Dave. The Mission Product Holdings decision eliminated some uncertainty that, you know, prior to the decision was plaguing licensors and licensees, and and that was the question of, is this a breach or is it a rescission? But I think uh, Justice Sotomayor's concurring opinion points out that that doesn't necessarily translate into a licensee always being able to continue to use post-bankruptcy. So what this means for folks at the negotiating table is this you're going to want to spell out very carefully, number one, what constitutes a breach, Mm -hmm. number two, what constitutes a material breach such that future performance may be excused by the other party or that license rights terminate immediately. And that's not uncommon in a variety of different type of license arrangements, you know, the things that will automatically terminate a licensee's rights to continue to use. Um, But that's going to be the pivotal point going forward. What constitutes a breach and what are the rights of each party at the time of the breach. And of course, folks will want to be mindful of state laws that may impact licensee rights upon termination as well. Okay, breach, isn't this something that you think would have been kind of confirmed or, or figured out a long time ago? This is a, a recent case, right? I mean, it, breach is pretty apparent, I think, in most types of agreements or contract law, isn't it? Or why is this different? Well, that's exactly right. And part of it um, touches on the language that Jennifer was talking about um, in the bankruptcy code where you had patent and copyright specifically called out, but trademark law hadn't been specifically called out. So that left Ah. um, licensors and licensees really kind of grappling with what happens. And and the court has answered that question for us. Very nice. All right, let's move on. Uh, I I call this, when we were circulating notes around earlier preparing for this program, I call this the main event. In full disclosure, Meredith warned me this was coming weeks ago. And she and she used the word scandalous in her email. We don't get a lot of scandalous emails around here. But anyway, <laughs> uh, main event, Iaco v. Brunetti on June 24th. 
the Supreme Court confirmed that trademarks cannot be refused federal registration on the basis that they constitute immoral or scandalous matter. All right, Meredith, let's stay with you since you started all this. Okay, <laughs> this is trademark law meets First Amendment, right? Give us some background. Well, in all candor, Dave, um, IP lawyers usually don't meet up with anything scandalous in their day-to-day activities. <laughs> you thought trademark law was going to be boring? No way. <laughs> so, you know, it's a big day for trademarks. Um, you know, this is the, the decision, the Brunetti decision is, is a great one. I, I can't help but think that somewhere George Carlin's laughing or smiling. Um, and, and I think you, you hit the nail right on the head. It's trademark law meets the First Amendment. If we take a step back... You know, trademarks really can extend to any name, word, symbol, device, or combination thereof, as long as the source is identified. That's really kind of a very broad-reaching subject matter um, for trademarks. And then the statute sets out some different categories that are completely off-limits. Descriptive marks, confusingly similar to other trademarks, misdescriptive marks. But then we had these other categories disparaging trademarks, scandalous, immoral trademarks. And we know from the Mattel versus Tom decision last year um, that disparaging was found to be unconstitutional. And as it turns out, we learned through the Brunetti decision that the, the scandalous and immoral provision was also stricken on the basis of constitutionality. And what had happened um, was the, the, it involved this, this guy named Eric Brunetti, who is a, a graffiti artist. And he had a clothing company called F-U-C-T. Right. Not pronounced all together, F-U-C-T. Gotcha. And uh, it, it stood for, I think the acronym was something about friends you can't trust. And he had been using this F-U-C-T brand on his clothing since the 90s. And in 2011, filed the United States trademark application to register F-U-C-T. And the examiner rejected right. the application on the grounds that it was it, scandalous and immoral. And so as it went through the various stages of appeal, it finally did get to the United States Supreme Court. And, and this term, the, the court held that the restriction on scandalous or moral trademarks violated the First Amendment to the Constitution because it constituted viewpoint discrimination. And that would, that's unconstitutional. Viewpoint discrimination. Okay, let's go back to Anna for a second. Now, again, we throw some notes around preparing for this program. I'd said something like, the Patent and Trademark Office doesn't lose. This isn't considered a loss. But I've got to believe somebody over there, when they were reviewing this, had to have known they were on shaky ground relative to the First Amendment. Or am I oversimplifying? Anna, what's your take on that? Dave, I think that's right. Uh, Meredith just mentioned that it was only recently that the Supreme Court decided the Mattel v. Tam case. And you may recall that case. It was the one involving the ban called the Slants. Mm -hmm. And uh, the court considered whether the ban on the registration of disparaging marks with the, the Slants considered a disparaging mark was unconstitutional. And so, you know, as Meredith mentioned, that it came down to whether this bar on registration was viewpoint-based, um, and if so, then it's unconstitutional. So here we're now looking at whether the scandalous provision, which is all part of the same provision as the, um, of the Lanham Act as the disparaging bar was, and whether this is also viewpoint-based. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as you, as you mentioned, the Trademark Office knew what it was in for because it had just had this disparaging marks yeah. case. And so it was looking for a way to try to get around this viewpoint-based reading. And by asking the court to have a more narrow reading of the statute and to consider scandalous marks to only be those that are, that are offensive because of their mode of expression, mm -hmm. independent of the views that were expressed. 
So we're talking about like lewd, sexually explicit, profane types of marks. And mm-hmm. um, the court rejected this argument because while it would eliminate the First Amendment problems, um, it's not what the statute says. And um, you know, their role is to interpret the statute as enacted and not to fashion a new one. So basically, the court said that, you know, there's just a lot of immoral and scandalous ideas out there. The Lanham Act covers them all. And because of that, it's going to be um, a violation of the First Amendment. Makes sense now that you, you kind of crystallize it that way for me. Let's go back to Jennifer Swayze, who's doing great, by the way, in her first ever podcast. Jennifer, <laughs> what do you see as the main takeaways or effects of this decision moving forward? Sure. So so first, uh, there's obviously the just the immediate effect that the immoral or scandalous provision can't be used as a get around for the prior determination by the Supreme Court that disparaging marks are not constitutional. So the PTO is not going to be able to reject trademark applications on the basis they are, that they are immoral or scandalous. But second, and, and Dave, uh, you may be happy to hear this because this may not be the end of a conversation about scandalous marks. Ah. There was a, a big debate among the justices about whether a narrower basis, a nar- narrower ground for rejecting these kinds of trademarks might be upheld under the First Amendment. And so you've got some justices saying, well, if it had only said scandalous, and not immoral or scandalous, Mm -hmm. or if we focused on vulgar terms, uh, these sort of terms that that Anna said are really more about modes of expression than viewpoint, then maybe that would withstand First Amendment scrutiny. So, you know, we may see some legislative efforts to reinsert some similar language, but more narrowly focused, that would give the PTO this avenue for rejecting marks that Mm -hmm. may be the kind that society wouldn't, wouldn't want registered. So while this case has been decided, maybe the larger issue, in a sense, the jury still may be out longer term. Back to Meredith. I was intrigued by what Justice Alito wrote in his concurring opinion. He said that this decision does not prevent Congress from adopting a more carefully focused statute that precludes the registration of marks containing vulgar terms that play no real part in expression of ideas. Now, here's what caught my eye in this. Is the play no real part in the expression of ideas phrasing just asking for trouble later on? Is that an open door still? You know, Dave, it's it's a very interesting question. And, and Anna and Jennifer both touched on this a little bit when they were talking about how the, the government was essentially trying to save the constitutionality of the statute by saying, no, this is really more about the expression as opposed to a viewpoint to get it out from under sort of that First Amendment umbrella. And clearly, Justice Leto is, I, in my view, encouraging congressional action in this mm-hmm. regard. That 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 the juries, you know, this this discussion is not over yet. Um, but you know, the can of worms point, I think, is is one that's really well taken. Um, going way way back, I think, to like the early 1970s, the United States Supreme Court heard a case involving the past participle of a well-known profanity, and that's the way they referred to this F-U-C-T at yeah. oral argument in this case, um, um, Cohen versus California, and it involved a jacket that said F the draft. And, and the court in that decision said, you know, one man's vulgarity is another man's lyric. So uh. we have to be careful um, about, you know, broad categories of what constitutes vulgar or, or, you know, immoral, these types of vague terms that are susceptible to a lot of different meanings. I mean, here you have nine Supreme Court justices, very, 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 very smart people, and you have a lot of debate um, yeah. as to what some of these words could or might mean. The Chief Justice points out in his concurring opinion that, 
you know, obscenity is not protected speech. And so maybe we get around the, the viewpoint issues with the First Amendment with legislation that drafts around obscenity. But I think there's still there's still more scandal to be discussed. You, you said that maybe Alito was kind of nudging Congress towards legislation, perhaps. I, I never heard this sort of thing before. Does this happen? Forget IP law or trademarks or First Amendment stuff. Have you seen the court do this before? They come down with a decision or part of an opinion reads that, you know, hey, Congress, we need you to get something a little more, I guess, definitive. Is this is this common? It's happened absolutely in the trademark context. Um, when the dilution statute was first added to the Lanham Act, it had to go up and back to the Supreme Court with the Victor's Little Secret decision where, you know, the court had taken a certain path with respect to interpreting statute and, and Congress then reacts. So it's not unheard of in the IP context. It's not unheard of in the trademark context. And I think particularly here and possibly in the next term, too, we may see the court encouraging Congress to take some action. The Lanham Act hit taken a couple hits in the last yeah. couple of years. So although not the sexiest thing to get reelected on as a, a sitting <laughs> senator or congressperson, definitely, I think, in my view, the, the need for some legislation. Interesting, interesting. Okay, with our remaining time in this edition of Jones Day Talks, Women in IP, let's talk about a couple trademark cases the court is likely to hear next term. Let's go to Anna first. Let's talk about Romag Fasteners, Inc. v. Fossil, Inc. Now, here are a number of high-end retailers, including Macy's, Dillard's, and Nordstrom, are also named as co-defendants. Anna, what's the story? What's at issue here? Uh, what's at issue here is a damages issue, and specifically what is required to show that you should recover an infringer's profits in a trademark infringement case. So let me back up a little bit. Romag is a company that sells magnetic snap fasteners. So we're talking about the things that help close your handbags and wallets. And yep. they own a trademark for Romag for those um, types of snap fasteners, as well as some patent rights. Mm -hmm. And they had an agreement with Fossil for Fossil to use these fasteners in their um, various handbag products. Um, then in about 2010, Romag discovered that certain handbags made by Fossil had counterfeit snaps. So they had the Romag mark on them, but they were not legitimate Romag products. Uh, so because of that, they sued Fossil and um, a number of retailers um, that were selling Fossil's products for trademark and patent infringement. And now a jury found that Fossil had engaged in trademark and patent infringement, but it determined that those violations weren't willful. Mm -hmm. So what this meant is there was an impact on damages. And under the Lanham Act, there are certain remedies that you can obtain for violating Section 43, which is the false designation um, of origin and unfair competition statute. Mm -hmm. And one of those damages is the defendant's profits. But in order to do that in the circuit where this case was, Romag had to prove willful infringement. And so the court determined that they were entitled to that profit award because they hadn't shown willful infringement here by Fossil. You know, let's go to Jennifer. You mentioned the term willful infringement, and I've heard that before researching this case. Jennifer, what does willful infringement mean if someone's not familiar and why? Is that relevant here? Sure. So it, in general, it's going to mean a higher degree of culpability. It's more than negligence. It's even more than callous disregard. It's been described by a bunch of different terms, things like deliberate, willful deception, wanton, malicious, or bad faith. But it is this higher degree of wrongdoing. And so as Anna says, it's going to be a higher burden of proof, which is going to make it more difficult to 
prove and obtain infringer profits as a remedy for infringement it's it's relevant because you also have another option of your own actual damages the plaintiff's damages and while that doesn't have the willful infringement attached to it that has its own problems it can be hard to prove your own damages the petition in this case makes makes it really crystal clear by saying that if you're not allowed to get infringers profits that can be the difference between a meaningful recovery for trademark infringement and no recovery at all and so this higher burden that's imposed on infringers profits is a really big deal in trademark law Meredith how do you see this one playing out when the court hears this what do you what's your prediction if you will this is a tough one, Dave, and I would never presuppose that I'm anywhere near as smart as the, the justices who are going to hear this case. We've got a, a basically a circuit split. I mean, it's it's split right mm-hmm. down the middle here, six six. Um, half half the circuit saying willfulness is a necessary prerequisite to the disgorgement of profits, and and the balance of the circuit saying it's a factor to be considered. It's an equitable remedy disgorgement, and so it's a factor that could be considered in connection with with all the other relevant factors with respect to monetary relief. You know, you've got a, a majority of the court right now that is arguably conservative, and the conservative viewpoint would be, let's let Congress do the law writing and we'll do the law interpreting. And there's nothing in the statute that says willfulness is a prerequisite. And it reminds me of the eBay Merck Exchange case and when the court decided injunctions in patent infringement cases. And the court said, hey, listen, there's nothing in the statute that says there's a presumption of irreparable harm. We will allow the traditional principles of equity govern and and under those traditional principles that will be how the case is decided so i'm inclined to say that this court is going to come down on the side of willfulness being a factor mm-hmm. but not a prerequisite to disgorgement and now we'll just kind of wait and see if, if I, I i had a 50 i have a 50 50 chance so yeah. all right i'll, I'll take <laughs> the other 50 we'll, uh, get, let's get some action going here okay uh we have a couple minutes left let's talk about marcel fashion group inc the lucky brand dungarees inc is this another apparel industry related case another one it is. You, yeah, yeah, yeah. Why, why does the court just move to Rodeo Drive and get it over with? I, I'm looking at this. It's like we, <laughs> we're talking about four cases, three of them somehow involve fashion accessories. Anyway, sorry. Uh, they, Jennifer, might be, they might be as befuddled as you, Dave. <laughs> that wouldn't be hard. Okay, Jennifer, tell us about this case. I guess uh, these two companies have been going at each other over trademarks for the better part of two decades. But this particular action involves Marcel's Get Lucky trademark. What's going on here? Yeah, that's right. So this case cases date back to 2001. They've been in this dispute, and, and frankly, they've had claims going both directions about lucky and related marks that can be used by either either side. And they've had serial litigation over this, so it hasn't just been one case, but they've been coming back to court seeking relief for who gets to use these marks. And part of it uh, was settled. So back in the 2001 case, in 2003, the parties ended that case by a settlement. And what's been going on in the later cases has largely involved or significantly involved what is the scope and effect of that settlement agreement? Does it resolve the party's issues? Is it not open? They don't agree at all on how to read that settlement agreement. So the real the real heart of the issue, what the Supreme Court took the, the case on, is this. It's the concept of defense preclusion in serial litigation. So just like this case where the parties keep coming back to court in multiple suits, what is 
the availability of litigation defenses for a defendant that could have raised the defense in a prior dispute between the same parties, or maybe even did raise the defense but then dropped it or never pursued it. We're familiar with these concepts of claim preclusion and issue preclusion. Those are longstanding doctrines about claims or issues that can or cannot be brought again. And the Second Circuit gave this new term, defense preclusion. And so what's really at stake is the viability of this doctrine. Can a defendant be precluded from asserting a defense against a new claim that's been asserted against it on the basis that it could have raised that defense before against the same party but didn't? I see. So those are implications. Anna, anything you'd add to that in terms of what might be at stake here, depending on how the court might rule? I think Jennifer just summarized that perfectly for us. And really, this could have an impact on defendants, how they actually litigate their case and the necessity to think about all possible defenses and make sure that those are all being litigated, in particular for Lucky Brand. Here, they had actually had success on their defense, which was that there was this release that had been signed to Marcell's trademark infringement claims. And so if the court does rule that this doctrine of defense preclusion applies, then they're not going to be able to raise that defense that they were successful on, and they're going to have to keep litigating the trademark infringement claims. Okay. Meredith, any other closing thoughts on the ramifications of Marcell Fashion Group? I agree 100% with what Anna and Jennifer have both said about this case. It's an interesting one because it's a different twist on claim preclusion principles that we're also very familiar with. And it's just, I think, a nice reminder to defense counsel to pick up Rule 8 when you're going through that complaint and making sure that you've looked at all those defenses that are there. Because if you don't raise them, you waive them. And sit down and have that conversation with clients about, is there any way, shape, or form that we can develop this one, this one, this one? And be mindful of those Rule 8 defenses throughout the case. Hey, one more thing before we wrap up for today. Meredith, give us an update on what Women in IP has planned for the rest of 2019. We've got two really exciting programs coming up for the balance of the year, Dave. Starting in October, we're doing a trade secrets program out of our Los Angeles office, and that'll be on October the 29th. And then at year end, out of our Washington, D.C. office, we're doing another of our Women in the Courtroom offerings. And this one is different than ones that we've offered in the past in that we're now doing a view from the appellate bench. So we're really, really excited about the balance of these two CLE programs. They'll be available live in the various Jones Day locations, and then they will also be broadcast over the Internet and available to be accessed through through a web-based platform. So if you can show up in person, we would love to have you there in person. But if you can just dial in and participate, we would love that as well. Okay, so October 29th is which one is that again? October 29th. That would be the trade secret program in Los Angeles. Very close to Halloween, so trick or treat. And <laughs> event number two is what again? That would be the Women in the Courtroom program, and this one's going to be a view from the appellate bench. Right. And that will be um, in our Washington, D.C. office on December the 11th. Okay, where can we get information on both of those? Information will hopefully be available um, on the Jones Day website, and we will also be sending out invitations to all of our clients and friends. Awesome. And there's another edition of Jones Day Talks, Women in IP. Uh, Jennifer, Anna, Meredith, thanks. 
we will do this again uh, next quarter, if not sooner. But always great talking to you guys. And uh, these, these programs are very, very popular with our listeners. So thanks so much for being here today. Thanks for having us. You too. Thanks so much. All right. It's see you soon. Take care. You can find complete bios for Jennifer, Anna, and Meredith at jonesday.com. While you're there, be sure to check out our new Women in IP video, which talks about how the initiative started and what it does. Subscribe to Jones Day Talks on Apple Podcasts. I'm Dave Dalton. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you for listening to Jones Day Talks. Comments heard on Jones Day Talks should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. The opinions expressed on Jones Day Talks are those of lawyers appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information, please visit jonesday.com.